Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. This morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, and to save you some leg muscle, all right, because we're about 40-some verses, I'm going to read a good chunk of it, and then I'll have you guys stand up, okay, for the last portion, all right, because it is a lengthy passage. But we don't often get to celebrate two of the ordinances or sacraments, depending on what tradition you come from. On the same day, we got to celebrate baptism earlier today, and now we get to today not only talk about the Lord's Supper, but we get to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, In our text today, we get to actually approach a Lord's Supper passage, a passage that's about uh, the Lord's Supper. And we don't normally get to teach specifically on this ordinance or the sacrament, depending on what tradition you're from. And so I'm really excited to be able to do that this morning. Let's start in verse 41 in John chapter 6. Then the Jews began to complain about him, him being Jesus, because he said... I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, y'all remember, let's stop right there. Remember last week, uh, Pastor Brandt spoke about the bread of heaven and how they wanted him to be like this Moses character. And he's like, show us a sign. And it was all about them thinking that Moses was the one that did it. When it's like, no, God does everything, okay? And that's gonna be really important, that God's the one that moves, that God's the one that provides. Jesus is about to tell us that God is the only one that saves. No amount of works you do, nothing in that realm can save you. It is only only by faith in Christ and belief in him that you can be saved. And we're about to see that, but it's an important part for our discussion. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say I've come down from heaven? Basically, he's just pointing out and insulting. Like you say you come from heaven. That's not true. We know your parents, right? That's, we know how you got here, right? That's the insult that they're trying to make. Jesus answered them, do not complain amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the father who sent me and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Then he says very truly or truly, truly or verily, verily, depending on your translation. This is an important statement that Jesus is trying to focus us on. I tell you, Whoever believes has eternal life. So Jesus makes it clear here that everyone who believes has eternal life. He says again, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, those previous verses should sound similar. He's been talking about being the bread of heaven. He already has talked about the ancestors in the wilderness and and God providing the manna. He's going to mention it again later on in the text. And so this is a main portion of this scripture. But then Jesus starts saying some things that are very interesting. So he says in verse 51, I am that living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then the Jews then started disputing among themselves again, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Is anybody's stomach getting a little queasy here from reading these? Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which the ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. While many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Translation. Did you hear just what I had? Did you hear him? He's crazy. That's pretty much what they're saying. He's crazy. This is insane. He's talking about drinking his blood and eating his body and having life. This is nonsense. But they said, this is difficult. This is hard to understand. But Jesus, being aware that the disciples were now complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you are those who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who did not believe And who was the one who would betray him? And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the father. Now, if you will stand with me and read this last portion out loud together in honor of God's word, starting in verse 66. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My goal for us this morning is really simple. I want us as a church, I want you, I want me to fall in love with celebrating the Lord's Supper. I believe the Lord's Supper is a gift from God that allows us to celebrate what God has done on the cross and to remember him as our Paschal lamb. But I also believe, as we will see this morning, that by by participating in the Lord's Supper, it not only reminds us of the union that we have with one another, but it reminds us of that unbreakable bond that we have with God. And when we think about those things, those things impact us and transform us in beautiful ways ways. For some of you this morning, you may have grown up in a background that made much of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you uh, were always taught about the Lord's Supper and some of these things that you might hear today might be like, oh, I don't know about that. Or man, that's, that's exactly what I was taught. Or maybe like, oh, I've never heard that before. 
For some of you, maybe you grew up in a tradition, a faith tradition that never celebrated the Lord's Supper. And you think, wow, this is a little bit deeper than I thought the Lord's Supper was supposed to be or represent. But I believe at just the very basic for us this morning that we have an opportunity to unwrap this beautiful passage in all of its complexity to show us just absolutely how beautiful it is that we get to partake in the Lord's Supper. Sometimes I hear people say, man, we're taking the Lord's Supper again. Man, that's, we just did that. And I really believe that if we understood the beauty, the complexity, the depth of the Lord's Supper, that we would find ourselves not only in gratitude for God, but we would be celebrating and being excited about every single time we take the Lord's Supper. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to divide our time into three different sections. The first section I want us to talk through is John chapter six as a Lord's Supper passage. And I promise you, I'm trying, I'll try not to get nerdy, okay, in that section, okay? Because it is uh, kind of complicated, but I'll try not to get nerdy, uh, but it's, it's awesome. I love geeking out over this type of stuff. But the first one is John, Lord's, uh, John six as the Lord's Supper passage. The second thing I want us to walk through is the Lord's Supper as a sanctifying sign. And then lastly, I want us to talk through our response to these beautiful truths, so John chapter six as a Lord Supper passage. When we come to this text, there's a lot of interesting things that Jesus says, and we can either say two, one of two things. This has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper, so we are going to just kind of throw that out there, and we're just gonna say everything's metaphorical, and we can just kind of dismiss it and move on. We know the disciples did this. Some of the disciples, it tells us in verse 66, when we started reading, that they left him over this teaching. They dismissed it. Or we can, in my estimate, look at it and say, how can I take this text seriously? And I think when we do, and we look at all the information that we have, we can come to the conclusion that this passage in John chapter six is a pretext, or it is one of the first teachings about the Lord's Supper. And then Jesus is going to finish that teaching one year from now at the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22. And so to make my case, or I'm trying to present my case here, uh, I want us to look at Luke chapter 22 and then compare it to John chapter 6. So let's read Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 23. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and giving thanks, he said, take this, divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me. His hand is on the table for the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask one another, which one of them it could be who would do this. When we compare John chapter six to Luke chapter 22, the last supper, we see these comparisons. The first thing we see is that they're both celebrated in the Passover, And that the Passover and the Exodus story is the backdrop for both of these things. The Last Supper, Jesus is our Paschal Lamb. He is the ultimate one-time sacrifice for sin, as Hebrews tells us. And we see 
that John chapter 6 is, is, is being taught during the week of Passover as well. Now, I want to put this kind of thought out there for you. Imagine for a moment, Jesus never said anything about his body and his blood. And it's now the Last Supper. He says, hey, this is my blood. This is my body. And then he leaves. And there's no time for him to explain anything because he goes to the cross. You probably would expect them to have some questions or maybe wrestle with it a little bit. Well, we know that's what they do because in John chapter six, they hear it the first time and they said, this is a hard teaching. So what this shows me is this, that Jesus teaches on the Lord's supper one year prior. So then he has a year to talk with, teach and answer questions for the disciples so that when they get to the last supper and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood in the cup. When he says that, They accept it. They're both celebrating at the Passover meal and have connection. The second thing that's a comparison is they both have body and blood language. It's very similar, if not almost identical. (laughs) In fact, it would be unique or it would show us something if blood was not mentioned in John chapter six. If he just kept on talking about bread, bringing the bread of heaven and he never mentioned blood at all, then we could say, okay, there's not a connection there. But he mentions the blood multiple times, drinking the blood. In fact, there's multiple times in scriptures, in the scripture where we see bread and blood together at a meal and they're focusing on the Lord's Supper. And so we have to see that connection there. The third thing that we see is the sacrificial language in both of these accounts. In Luke chapter 22, he says, I can't wait to celebrate this Passover meal with you before I suffer. And he tells us he's going to give his life. And in John chapter six, in verse 51, it tells us that I am the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There's sacrificial language. We have son of man in both of these stories as well. In Luke chapter 22, it says that the son of man is going to where it's been determined he would go to. And in our chapter, in John chapter six, he says, how you think you're, you think this is crazy. What if you saw the son of man going back to where he came from? And lastly, both accounts end with Judas Iscariot. Both accounts end with the betrayer the one who did not believe but betrayed Jesus. It's very similar. It's so similar that, to be honest with you, they they have to be connected. But not only that, we see other elements in our text. The transition to physically eating and drinking. The actual act of eating and drinking. See, in our text, Jesus uses different verbs and he goes from a general form of eat to a more descriptive, more physical form of eating. So let's read this so I can show you this. I added the parentheses to show you. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's confusing. So Jesus said to him, very truly I tell you, unless you eat, which is the verb to eat, the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But then look at the change and all the eats will be different after here on out. 
Those who eat, and the word there is to munch, to gnaw, to chew. It's very descriptive. My flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat, munch, gnaw, chew my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. So it's very descriptive that he's going to this physical form of eating. He's trying to show you, hey, I'm not talking about this metaphorical eating here. No, we're actually talking about eating and drinking at this point. And last but not least, the reason why this is, I believe this is a John chapter six passage is because this is a, the historical understanding of it. Uh, J.N.D. Kelly in his book, Early Christian Doctrines, uh, writes in a really lengthy chapter about how you would be hard pressed to find many theologians, pastors, church fathers who did not consult John chapter six in their formulation of the Lord's Supper. And so because of this, I come to this text and say, okay, well, If it's the Lord's Supper, then we have to address some of these crazy sayings that Jesus said. So let me read them again for you, okay? Let's just just see what he says here if this is a part of the Lord's Supper passage, if it's a Lord's Supper text. In verse 53, it says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh, drink my blood, abide in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. So what could this mean? How do we make sense of these Sayings that Jesus abides in us when those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, he abides in us. Or how do we have life when we partake of the elements in the Lord's Supper? And this is where I think it's helpful to express this as a sanctifying sign, a sanctifying sign. Traditionally, there have been multiple ways to describe the Lord's Supper. Some call it ordinances, some call it sacraments, and there's varying degrees of nuance and varying degrees of how that works out in the Christian life. I want to present to you this sanctifying sign, which I believe is um, at minimum represented in this text. And to do this, I want to look at another Old Testament passage that informs us of this one. Remember, John is using Old Testament themes and stories to inform us of how to read and interpret certain scriptures. There's another story in scripture where eating is at the center point. You guys know what that is? It's early on in the book of the Bible. Genesis, thank you. Genesis chapter three. Let me read that for you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made a loincloth for themselves. When we look at 
Genesis chapter three, we see eating as, or at the, the, the center point of this story. Eating of a fruit. Now let me ask you a question. Was eating the reason why sin and death entered into the world? Was it? No, right? The eating represented something else. It represented what? Disobedience. It represented not trusting the voice of God, but instead trusting the voice of a serpent. It represents misplaced trust. It represents a denial and a resistance of what God wants for us in our lives. Eating is a physical sign of what was happening inwardly. It was a representation of what was happening inside. So when you look at the eating in the garden, from a physical standpoint, you could say, by eating, we die. By eating, we brought death. But we know that that is just a physical sign of what was happening in the lives of Adam and Eve. What was happening in the garden of disobedience and rebellion and misplaced trust. In the same way, we can go to John chapter 6. And we can say, by eating, we have life. The eating doesn't do anything. John's very clear. There's no salvific part of this at all. It is by belief in Christ you have eternal life. No works can save you. So then what does he mean when he says things like, by eating you will have life, or by eating I abide in you? It means that by eating, we get to do the opposite of what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Instead of disobedience by eating the food in the garden, by partaking the Lord's Supper, we show our obedience to Christ. So when he tells us in Luke to do this in remembrance of me, and when Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians to do this as often as you gather, we are called to be obedient by taking the Lord's Supper. Instead of showing resistance by eating the fruit in the garden and moving away from God, by participating in the Lord's Supper, we can embrace Christ and draw closer to him. Instead of placing our trust In the voice of the deceiver, we can place our trust in the ultimate sacrifice, the shepherd and sacrificial lamb, Jesus. It's at the Lord's Supper that we can recommit our lives as we remember God's commitment to us. Amber and I just celebrated our eighth anniversary a couple weeks ago. And every anniversary, we re-watch our wedding video. So that includes the ceremony, our vows, uh, the reception. We watch the whole thing. And afterwards, we look at each other and we recommit to those vows. Now, let me ask you a question. Were we married when we watched that video again this year? Yeah. Did anything change about our relationship? Like, were we, like, were we more married after we watched that video? No. We're still married when we watch that video. However, when we watch that video and we remember what our wedding was like, when we remember the feelings that we had on our wedding day and what it was like to pray in front of our family, when we remember uh, Amber's dad gave this like beautiful prayer at the end where everyone was like sobbing, you know, when we remember all those things, we remember the reception and having all of our friends there, when we remember the vows that we made to each other, And when we recommit to say, you know what? I'm gonna love you 
hopefully more than I loved you back in the last eight years, but remember and say, I'm gonna recommit to take those vows seriously to you. Does that change your relationship a little bit? Absolutely, it makes it deeper. And see, that's what the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to say, God, I remember what you have done for me. I remember you going to that cross, dying and spilling not only your blood, but your body was broken. And when I remember that, I can remember that your covenant and your commitment to me has never failed. I can remember that your bond to me will never fail, that you have saved me. And then I get to say, wow, I have really messed up in my own life, haven't I? I get to take this time to repent of sin in my life. And I can say, God, I wanna love you better and more tomorrow than I did yesterday. Nothing changes about your relationship to God. But the very act of celebrating the Lord's Supper when taken seriously can change the dynamics a little bit with him as you grow deeper in your relationship with God. And see, that's where it moves beyond just a sign, beyond just saying, God, I'm gonna remember what you did. This is the sanctifying part. Just like reading scripture is sanctifying, praying to God, generosity, service, fasting. These are all just tools and things that God asks us to do. And when we do that in obedience, the spirit comes into our life and allows us to become more like Jesus as we pursue him. And the Lord's Supper is one of those ways we get to do that. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, it should not be, oh man, we have to do this again. It should be, thank you, Jesus, that I get to celebrate the Lord's Supper again. Thank you, Jesus, that you have died for me. It's in the Lord's Supper that you're not only reaffirming your commitment to Christ, but you are remembering his commitment to you in this new covenant. It's in the Lord's Supper that we intentionally call to our minds our sin and repent of them before him, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive. It's in the Lord's Supper that we embrace Christ in a very real way. It's an act of embracing him and his sacrifice on the cross. It's in the Lord's Supper that we show him that we are grateful, that we accept what he has done again and again and again. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is the one sacrifice for all time. He doesn't need to do it multiple times. He doesn't do it multiple times. He dies once for the sins of the whole world. But what I have found is that I often have to ask forgiveness multiple, multiple, multiple times. It doesn't mean that he hasn't saved me. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. It just means that I'm recognizing things in my own life that I need to confess to him and ask forgiveness for. It's things that I need to lay before God. In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the unbreakable union that God has with us through his sacrifice on the cross. And it also reminds us of our community, that those who have put their faith in Christ get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that we have, there's one body. There's been one blood that was shed for us and broken for us. And together, we get to do that together because we are the church. We're his bride. It's in the Lord's Supper that he abides in us. There's a story in Luke chapter 24 with two disciples and they're on their road to Emmaus. Jesus has died, he's risen again and he appears to these disciples and he walks like seven miles with them 
talking about Jesus, talking about the Messiah, talking about the scriptures. They get to a point where they say, hey, we need to head in for the night and we need to eat. We need to take some time. And they sit down together and Jesus grabs the bread in front of these two disciples. And the text tells us in Luke chapter 24 that when he breaks the bread in front of them, their eyes are open and they see Jesus for who he is. Now, I don't know what to make of that passage particularly, but I do know this. Just as all of us, if you put your faith in Christ, have the spirit living within you, there are moments where sometimes we say, man, I just felt the spirit uniquely in this way or the spirit moved uniquely in this way. There's moments that while all of us, the spirit is everywhere living inside of us, we say those things about the spirit that we see him moving in this place or that place or this situation. I think the same is true, uh, same is true with Christ in this situation. That when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, yeah, obviously Jesus is with us. But it's a unique moment where we get to focus our attention on him and he's with us in a unique way when we do that. If we take this text seriously, then we need to stop acting as if the Lord's Supper is an add-on to the Christian life. This is something beautiful. This is something amazing that we as the church, as his bride, get to participate in. So what should our response be? Well, we have two examples in scripture. Either you can desert him or you can embrace. Our response to the Lord's Supper is to celebrate what Christ has done for us, through us, and what he will do in the future as we await his return. Our response as followers of Christ is to do what Peter said in the text. Let me read what Peter says. Jesus says to him, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's a translation. No matter what I don't understand, no matter some of the teaching or tensions I may find myself when I have one view and the Bible says another. I recognize that I am fallible. I recognize that I am not God. And so I come to you with humble surrender. And I say, who would I go to? You are the only one who has the words of eternal life. You are the only holy one of God. And so no matter if I disagree no matter if there's tension, no matter if I don't necessarily understand, I will believe and I will trust and I will wait, even for clarity. Remember, this is gonna be a full year before the disciples are back around the table and Jesus will conclude this teaching. It's a full year where they probably had to wrestle with this teaching and what Jesus has said. And yet, they show us a model of our response to God Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. I want to close with this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, You can never be the same after the unveiling of a truth. The moment marks you for going on as a more true disciple of Jesus Christ or for going back as a deserter. We see that people did this. 
They deserted Christ after a hard and difficult teaching. We may not all understand it. There's a lot of different faith traditions out there believe differently on this particular passage and what it means. Because it's a tough passage. It really is the difficult teaching. But we come to it saying, Jesus, what do you want us to know? How can we humbly put ourselves before you and embrace what you have done for us on the cross? And we ask Jesus to transform us in our obedience to him. So if you would take out the elements. And for a moment, if you would just take some time alone with God. Remember, this is a time where you get to repent before the Lord of sin. Remembering what Christ has done for you. So if you put your faith in Christ, I'm asking you to take the cup. And just take a few moments just being alone with God. This was a tough and difficult teaching, but in due time, one year from then, Jesus would finish his teaching in a small room with his 12 disciples. While they were fighting about who is the greatest among them, Jesus would kneel down and he would wash his disciples' feet, taking the very form of a servant. But then he would rise and he would bless the Passover meal and then he would finish his teaching. Paul recounts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. In the same way, he took the cup also. And after supper, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's worship Jesus together. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.